We're proud to support Living on Earth and hope you will too. You can contribute at LOE.org. From Public Radio International, this is Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood, getting a handle on what's been missing from the presidential debate. The candidates for president really weren't talking about any of the big science issues. And we're moving into a century now when science really lies at the center of most of our big policy challenges as a country and across the world. And we thought that politicians ought to be talking about it. Taking stock of the answers the candidates gave to the big science questions. Also, in coal country, some voters see a government plot against their livelihoods. The current administration is putting coal through the EPA out of business. If there's no mines, guess what? There's no jobs here in our area. We'll have those stories and... A seasonal bird note this week on Living on Earth. Stick around. Support for Living on Earth comes from the National Science Foundation and Stonyfield Farm. From the Jennifer and Ted Stanley Studios in Boston, this is Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. The first presidential debate dealt with domestic issues, the economy, taxes, jobs... By all accounts, Governor Romney was well-prepared and combative, charging the president with imposing trickle-down government on America. For his part, President Obama seemed more subdued, addressing the camera and the viewers rather than his challenger. Energy was an issue addressed early, and the president saw some common ground. On energy, Governor Romney and I, we both agree that we've got to boost American energy production. And oil and natural gas production are uh, higher than they've been in, in years. But I also believe that we've got to look at the energy sources of the future, like wind and solar and biofuels, and make those investments. But the president's Republican opponent had a different take on why oil and gas production is booming and where to look for more energy. Energy is critical, and the president pointed out correctly that production of oil and gas in the U.S. is up, but not due to his policies, in spite of his policies. Mr. President, all of the increase in natural gas and oil has happened on private land not on government land. On government land, your administration has cut the number of permits and licenses in half. If I'm president, I'll double them and also get the the oil from offshore in Alaska and I'll bring that pipeline in from Canada. And by the way, I like coal. I'm going to make sure we can continue to burn clean coal. People in the coal industry feel like it's getting crushed by your policies. I want to get America and North America energy independent so we can create those jobs. Energy was also wrapped into the part of the debate about government deficits. President Obama said he could see some cuts. The the oil industry gets $4 billion a year in corporate welfare. Basically, they get deductions that those small businesses that Governor Romney refers to, they don't get. Now, does anybody think that ExxonMobil needs some extra money when they're making money every time you go to the pump? Why wouldn't we want to eliminate that? For his part, Governor Romney attacked President Obama for his investments in energy conservation and renewable energy. You put $90 billion into, into green jobs. And, and I, look, I'm all in favor of green energy. $90 billion. That, that, would have, uh, that would have hired 2 million teachers. $90 billion. And, and these businesses, many of them have gone out of business. I think about half of them of the ones that have been invested in have gone into business. A number of them happen to be owned by, by, by people who are contributors to your campaigns. 
Almost all the points the two candidates made are well-worn talking points in stump speeches and in the barrage of campaign ads in swing states. But the debate did bring home the point whoever is at the helm in the White House for the next four years will have to chart a critical course for energy and the economy. Now, noticeably missing from the first presidential debate was an in-depth conversation about science and the environment. That's where the journal Scientific American steps in. The magazine asked each of the candidates 14 questions about their policies on some important scientific topics. Sean Otto organized the questions. He's co-founder and CEO of ScienceDebate.org. The candidates for president really weren't talking about any of the big science issues. They were comfortable talking about the economy, even though none of them were economists. They're happy to talk about foreign policy and military intervention, even though none of them were diplomats or generals. And they even were debating faith and values, even though they weren't priests or pastors. But they weren't talking about the big science issues that affect all voters' lives. And we're moving into a century now when science really lies at the center of most of our big policy challenges as a country and across the world. And we thought that politicians ought to be talking about it. Tell me a bit about the methodology here. How did you pick these questions? Um, How do you rate them, the responses? Well, we crowdsourced. We reached out to thousands of scientists, engineers, and concerned citizens that have signed on to support the sciencedebate.org website, uh, about 43,000 of them right now, and also through our Facebook group and through other science bloggers. We publicized this and asked for questions. We put up a facility where people could submit questions, rate the questions that others had submitted, and we built a nice online discussion there to get a good sense of what the U.S. science community felt were the most important questions. Well, certainly one of the most important science questions that affects policy, and a lot of people are wondering about, has to do with climate change. Tell me, what do each of the candidates have to say about climate disruption and how they would address it? Well, uh, President Obama talks about uh, different steps that he has taken through the course of the last four years, particularly regulatory steps, uh, regulating uh, greenhouse gases, as well as doubling fuel efficiency standards, the CAFE standards. For cars. Yes, for cars. On the Romney side, he makes a backtrack from his late 2011 position where he was saying we don't know what causes climate change. And now he admits that we do know that the climate is changing and that humans are a significant part of the cause of that. But he veers into anti-science when he says that there is no consensus. That's simply not true. There is a consensus. His focus, however, is on reducing regulations and bring up private enterprise to innovate. So they both take varying approaches that are kind of consistent with what you would expect of their overall philosophy from Democrats and Republicans. Now, you also asked President Obama and Governor Romney about food safety. And uh, in your question, you say the public is concerned about the use of hormones, antibiotics, uh, pesticides in our food system. How did each of these candidates respond? Well, this is one area where They've both talked about different regulatory approaches, actually, and safeguarding the quality of our food. I think that the Romney approach there, again, is a little bit more about deregulation and allowing industry to self-police. 
he basically has the philosophy of if you get government out of the way, the industry will self-regulate to uh, ensure consumer health. Whereas uh, the Obama administration takes more of a consumer protection point of view. Now, the issue of fresh water was also put to each of these candidates. You framed it uh, saying that overconsumption and pollution are endangering uh, our fresh water supply, both uh, domestically and internationally. How would each of these candidates secure clean, fresh water? When we get into Obama's answers, he talks about a Clean Water Act, which he really pushed through in the early years of his administration, the first term. He has some significant progress to show there. Romney doesn't really offer a single specific step to improve water quality. He implies that the real problem with water quality is regulations, again. One of the quotes from his answers are that communities and businesses must contend with excessively costly and inflexible approaches that impose unnecessary economic constraints and trigger inevitable litigation. I'm wondering, is he suggesting that he would relax clean water standards? That's certainly what it sounds like, that he views current water quality regulations as costly and inflexible, and that we need to loosen them up. And uh, what about the issue of energy? How did each of these candidates... uh, stack up on this? Well, on energy, neither one of them had great answers. Obama, as he did in many of his answers, highlighted the achievements of his first term instead of painting a vision for the future. Romney is more visionary, but a lot of times his vision doesn't connect with what policy uh, experts in energy view as the reality of the situation. For example? Well, he talks about energy independence. Even if United States, Mexico, and Canada, which is North American energy independence, which is really what he's talking about, could produce all the energy that they consume uh, within the North American continent. That really would have no measurable impact on the way that we buy energy, because energy is bought and sold in a global marketplace. So it's a meaningless concept to say that we're going to have energy independence, because if OPEC is selling into the marketplace at a cheaper price, then our refineries are going to purchase from them just to get us the lowest unit cost of energy per BTU. So uh, on balance, which of these uh, presidential candidates do you think is friendlier to science and the needs of science uh, exploration and discovery? Well, I think that they both have pluses and minuses. On the whole, however, Obama's answers do tend to intersect with the reality of uh, what science is telling us a little bit more directly. They tend to be a little bit more sophisticated in their understanding of what scientists are saying the issues are. I want to thank you, Sean Otto, for taking this time with me today. You're very welcome. I'm happy to be here. Sean Otto is the CEO of ScienceDebate.org and organizes science debate questions for the Scientific American. So we'd like to know what you think about the lack of campaign debate on science and whether the environment deserves a higher profile in these challenging economic times. You can reach us at comments at LOE.org. Once again, that's comments at LOE.org. Or post your thoughts at our Facebook page, PRI's Living on Earth. And you can call our listener line anytime at 800-218-9988. That's 800-218-9988.
And just ahead, a burning issue playing out in this year's elections, coal and its future. Stay tuned to Living on Earth. It's Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. Concerns about the economy and jobs are driving the election in different ways around the U.S., and when it comes to Appalachia, the environment is right in the middle of the debate thanks to coal. Coal faces a slew of new rules from the Obama administration. So in coal states like Pennsylvania, West Virginia, and Virginia, there are plenty of billboards, rallies, and ads as coal plants and mines shut down and new projects are stalled. But as Ann Murray of the public radio program Allegheny Front reports from northwestern Pennsylvania, there is much more to the change of fortune for coal than changing regulations. The Rocky Grove Fire Hall in Franklin, Pennsylvania, is buzzing with people on a mission. Carol Mulray organized this evening's political rally with six of her friends. She says President Obama is waging a war on her coal-dependent community, and he has to go. The current administration is uh, putting coal through the EPA out of business. Mulray's worried about Joy Global, one of Venango County's biggest employers. They make underground mining machines, and if there's no mines, guess what? There's no jobs here in our area. Joy Global has already laid off 200 people because of the slow economy. Mulray thinks new EPA pollution standards unfairly target mining operations and coal-fired power plants, and more jobs will be lost. Across the hall, Gary Dubois, a longtime mining engineer, is selling lawn signs that say, Stop the War on Coal. He says Mr. Obama's EPA has overstepped its bounds. We have administrators, non-elected officials, completely bypassing what our elected officials do, are supposed to do, and that's to make laws. They're completely overreaching it, yes. Dubois says his brisk multi-state sale of anti-Obama signs and t-shirts indicates the frustration in hard-hit coal communities. Alpha Natural Resources recently announced it will close mines in Pennsylvania, West Virginia, and Virginia, and cut more than a thousand jobs company-wide. This isn't good news. Here on 5 News, Andrew Forgotch has been keeping up with this story. This is apparently all part of a strategy to shift business away from U.S. power plants and towards overseas steel mills. One official said they're making the move thanks to stiffer EPA regulations and a drop in the demand for coal. With the demand for coal dropping, some of the biggest names in the coal industry and the GOP are financing aggressive efforts to defeat President Obama. The American Coalition for Clean Coal Electricity has spent about $12 million for pro-coal TV ads. Other groups are using the Internet. Obama has a war on coal. He's not letting up, and it's going to harm the economy and the American people. So he's and bankrupt won. the so, coal industry. So. Although the United Mine Workers of America disavows the war on coal language, the union, which backed Mr. Obama in 2008, remains uncommitted this year. That's according to Dan Kane. UMW's International Secretary-Treasurer. In 2012, we have not made an endorsement. It's primarily because of the uh, regulations and the activities of the EPA. We can't mine coal if there's no place to burn it. The UMW estimates EPA's mercury rule that will go into effect in 2015 will put a quarter of a million coal and coal-related jobs at risk. That's because they say it will be too expensive to retrofit older coal-burning plants. 
The union also complains that EPA has made it nearly impossible to build new plants under a new greenhouse gas regulation. Dan Kane says to meet the CO2 emission standard, future coal-fired facilities would have to capture and bury their carbon. Whether or not that can be done commercially, it can't right now. And it doesn't make sense for the EPA to require technology that isn't commercially available. But many U.S. power companies have long planned to close some of their aging, inefficient coal-fired plants. The U.S. Energy Information Administration, or EIA, says one out of 10 coal-fired plants will shut down in the next few years. Alan Beeman, energy analyst with EIA, cautions that plant closings are complicated. When you're talk about retiring a plant, it's a really complex decision. You're not looking at any single factor. There's no single straw that broke the camel's back. It's, you're looking at coal prices. You're looking at electricity demand growth. You're looking at natural gas prices. Electricity demand in many parts of the country is the lowest it's been in decades. And in the last four or five years, low natural gas prices, depressed by an abundance of shale gas, have rocked the U.S. energy market, says Beeman. If you look back over the last 50 or 60 years, the coal power plants have accounted for nearly half or slightly more than half of generation in the country. They were the workhorses of the fleet. But the economics have changed now with gas prices as low as they are today and with the efficient gas plants that are available. For the first time ever, gas and coal are neck and neck as the fuel of choice for electricity generation. The U.S. Environmental Protection Agency says economic factors like these have changed coal's position in the energy mix not malicious intent to target a fossil fuel. The EPA wouldn't talk on tape, but said in an email to the Allegheny Front, quote, coal is still expected to generate more of America's electricity than any other fuel source. However, market conditions in the power sector are driving business decisions that are completely independent from these long overdue pollution standards. Back at the rally in Franklin, Pennsylvania, citizens want to scrap the agency. Could you tell me what you think the chances of getting rid of the EPA is? Is it possible? Well, I think actually everything that relies on November 6th. Republicans and 17 Democrats in the U.S. House of Representatives aren't taking any chances. The last thing they did before taking a break for the elections was pass a package of bills to reduce EPA's regulatory reach. The White House has threatened to veto the bill if it makes it through Congress. For Living on Earth, I'm Ann Murray with the Allegheny Front. The Allegheny Front is a Pennsylvania public radio program. In the state of Virginia, both candidates seeking to replace the retiring Democratic U.S. Senator James Webb are playing up their friendliness to coal. Republican George Allen, a former governor who narrowly lost the Senate seat to Webb in 2006, has consulted for mining giants Peabody Coal and Alpha Natural Resources since he left office. His Democratic opponent, Tim Kaine, also a former governor, has a much harder record to defend when it comes to selling his support for the coal industry. And that history has become a key issue of the campaign. Here's Mark Rosell. He's a political scientist at George Mason University in Virginia. One of the political challenges for Kane coming into this campaign was that he was so closely tied 
to the policies of the Obama administration at the federal level. Kane was the head of the Democratic National Committee, and therefore he was the leading voice for many of the policies coming out of a Democratic administration in Washington, some of which were very unpopular in Virginia. The formula for victory for Democratic Party candidates running statewide in Virginia in the modern era has been to run to the right of the National Party wherever possible. Like the presidential election, uh, Professor, many people assumed that economic issues would decide this contest in Virginia. When did the environment become such an important factor in the race? Well, the environment has been an issue in the race all along, but it's been mostly muted. There hasn't been as much discussion about environmental concerns as there has been about jobs in the economy. But Democratic candidate Tim Kaine has been running some television ads extolling his support for coal mining and the fact that his family has connections to coal mining country in Virginia and that he is supportive of the industry. And of course, this is a position that's counter to positions taken by pro-environmental groups in the Democratic Party constituencies. We're going to play that ad now. Let me point out that the ad has Tim Kaine looking down from a helicopter. This state-of-the-art coal plant in southwest Virginia, where my wife's from, created 2,500 new jobs. As governor, I supported its construction. I also support offshore energy, conservation, and innovative investments in wind and solar, which together employ more than 66,000 Virginians. That's what I call unleashing our energy potential. I'm Tim Kaine, and I approve this message because innovation creates jobs, energy independence, and a cleaner tomorrow. What do you think Tim Kaine was trying to accomplish with this ad? First of all, Tim Kaine wants to position himself as a pro-economic growth candidate. And since jobs in the economy are the leading issues in this campaign, he wants to emphasize in economically distressed areas of Virginia that he supports various industries that are important to creating economic opportunity. How uh, has George Allen's campaign responded? The Allen campaign has argued that Tim Kaine is not authentic in presenting himself as a pro-industry type candidate, that he has taken positions more in tune with the policies of the Obama administration on environmental issues. Allen has tried to tie Kane to positions such as opposition to the pipeline that the Obama administration had uh, successfully stopped. And in general, Allen has portrayed himself as the more pro-jobs, pro-growth, pro-industry type candidate than Tim Kane, and essentially is arguing that Kane is a faker on this. I'm going to play uh, an ad that George Allen just recently made for his own campaign. America's at a crossroads. Will we continue to decline or begin to ascend again? I envision a better future where job creators are able to invest and grow free of excessive regulations and taxes, where we use America's energy resources to improve our quality of life. And then let's listen to some folks who, well, have the gloves a little bit more off. The Chamber of Commerce has run a counter ad against Tim Kaine. What exactly is Tim Kaine's position on American energy exploration? Yes if, yes but, yes when, and that means no. Kaine claims he's for American energy exploration, but wants to delay it. Kaine says he's for the Keystone XL pipeline, but just not now. We do know Kaine supported cap and trade, which would have raised energy costs. Tim Kaine on energy. The more you know, the more it sounds like no. Vote no on Tim Kaine. The U.S. Chamber is responsible for the content of this advertising. The chamber here is trying to say this guy not only is inconsistent, but you really can't trust 
what he says he's going to do as a candidate in this campaign. Look at his record in the past, and that will give you a more true insight into his actual beliefs about these issues. Now, the League of Conservation Voters has jumped into this with a lot of money for them. They're spending almost a million dollars to send out pieces of mail to a half a million households. Why do you think that the League of Conservation Voters is pouring money into the Kane campaign, despite the ambivalence they must feel? I think the League of Conservation Voters feels that it's especially important to pour extra money into this campaign, given the emphasis now on environmental issues. And even though Tim Kaine has taken a position that goes against pro-environmental groups, the League of Conservation Voters believe that Tim Kaine is far better than anything that would come from George Allen if George Allen were to go back to the Senate. These interest groups understand the importance of being pragmatic and being sensible. You can't find candidates who are 100% with you 100% of the time on your issues. You have to keep your eyes on the big picture. One Senate race can make the difference ultimately as to whether it's the Democrats or the Republicans who control the Senate after this election year is over. What do polls show at this point? The latest polls show that Tim Kaine has opened up a significant lead over George Allen. The Washington Post poll, I believe, has it at eight percentage points. One thing that has been pretty consistent throughout this election is that the polls in the Virginia Senate race have tracked very closely with the top of the ticket so that when Barack Obama and Mitt Romney were running statistically tied, so were Tim Kaine and George Allen. And ever since Barack Obama has opened up something of a real lead over Mitt Romney, Tim Kaine also has opened up a real lead over George Allen. So something is happening right now in Virginia that's for now at least favoring the Democratic candidates, both at the presidential and senatorial level. Mark Rosell is Professor of Public Policy at George Mason University in Virginia. Thank you so much, Professor. Okay, thank you. As we pass the fall equinox, the days grow shorter swiftly. Here in the north, the leaves are turning color. And as Bird Notes' Michael Stein explains... October brings another definitive sign of autumn. The syncopated honks of Canada geese are among nature's definitive heralds of autumn migration as V-shaped flocks of geese fly south. Millions of Canada geese migrate each year, although in recent decades, growing populations of non-migratory geese have remained in many parts of the country throughout the year. One reason for the change is that humans have introduced geese to these areas. Still, as October arrives, another voice tells us that some geese have not compromised their migratory ways a bit. You're hearing cackling geese, which sound like a falsetto version of the familiar Canada goose. Cackling geese resemble a toy version of Canada's, with shorter necks, rounder heads, and stubbier bills. The smallest cackling geese measure just a shade bigger than a mallard. The cackler's small voice suits perfectly its small size. It was once considered a diminutive form of Canada goose, but recent genetic research has shown the cackler to be a separate species. They breed in far northern Canada and western Alaska and winter along both coasts and in the southern Great Plains. Look and listen 
for pint-sized cackling geese this fall at refuges, in farm fields, and at other spots where migratory geese gather. For Bird Note, I'm Michael Stein. For pictures of Canada geese and their smaller cousins, cackling geese, flap on over to our website, LOE.org. This week, we mark the passing, at age 95, of Barry Commoner, biologist, social and environmental activist, and presidential candidate. Because he lived so long, many people may not know about his heyday, how, for example, by studying babies' teeth, he demonstrated that radioactive fallout from atomic weapons testing was getting into our food supply and endangering our health. This discovery was instrumental in spurring President Kennedy to negotiate an atomic test ban treaty back in the 1960s. Along with Rachel Carson, Commoner called out the dangers of DDT and dioxins, and he was active in launching the massive teach-in known as the First Earth Day. He championed solar energy and recycling, and boiled his philosophy down to four basic truths. Everything is connected to everything else. Everything must go somewhere. Nature knows best. And there is no free lunch. In 1980, Commoner ran for president on the Citizens' Party ticket. He got few votes, but championed the idea that people should use the ballot box to demand a restructuring of our political economy. He aged, but his fire did not dim. Six years ago, Barry Commoner gave some final words to the New York Times. He warned, regardless of anything else about the environment, if nothing is done beginning now to cut back strongly on the use of fossil fuels, we're headed for a disaster. Coming up, half of the Earth's oxygen comes from tiny marine life forms they have some unique and surprising skills as well. Keep listening to Living on Earth. Support for Living on Earth comes from Breckenridge Capital Advisors, applying a sustainable approach to fixed income investing. www.breckenridge.com The Grantham Foundation for the Protection of the Environment, supporting strategic communications and collaboration in solving the world's most pressing environmental problems. The Gordon and Betty Moore Foundation, and Gilman Ordway for coverage of conservation and environmental change. This is Living on Earth on PRI, Public Radio International. It's Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. Plants are capable of incredible things. They supply the Earth with oxygen, sequester carbon dioxide, and provide us with shade on a hot, sunny day. And now scientists at the University of Rhode Island have uncovered a surprising new talent in a group of tiny ocean plants the ability to run away. This remarkable discovery was made by Susanna Menden-Doyer, professor of oceanography at the University of Rhode Island. Welcome to Living on Earth. Hi, I'm glad to be here. So what kind of plant is this that can swim away from its predators? This phytoplankton species is a plant-like organism, and it functions a lot in the same way in that it photosynthesizes, so it takes the sunlight's energy and inorganic carbon and produces organic carbon like sugars, and the oxygen that we breathe. Now these are really tiny, they're kind of like algae? Exactly, they're microscopic algae, and even though they're microscopic, they're so numerous. Most of our planet is covered by water, by ocean water, and so the power of these numbers and the large area covered 
results in these microscopic organisms having a tremendous impact on our Earth's ecosystem. They generate about half the oxygen that is breathable in the atmosphere. So what uh, I would encourage your listeners to do is to say thank you to phytoplankton every other breath they take. Thank you, phytoplankton. (laughs) Now, please describe the specifics of this study. How do you figure out that a plant in the ocean is running away? Well, my lab works on predator-prey interactions. We're really interested in who eats whom. We were trying to figure out if these predators can distinguish between food that's nutritionally valuable to them and food that's less nutritionally valuable or less good. So can they distinguish between, let's say, a salad and a bag of Doritos, for example? (laughs) And what kind of predators are these? These are all single-celled predators. They are just about the same size as their food. They're just about as numerous as the phytoplankton. And in the last 20 years or so, people have discovered that they are very voracious eaters of phytoplankton. So what did you discover in terms of the ability of the phytoplankton to get away from these guys that want to gobble them up? What we do is we use stereo video cameras to image in three dimensions how these organisms move. And we do different kinds of incubation. Sometimes we just have the algae in the, in the tank. Sometimes we have just the predator. And sometimes we put both of them together. And by looking at the differences in behavior when they're together and when they're separate, we can tell things like, do they respond to each other? We also do numerous control experiments where we simply take, for example, the wash water from the predator. So they've left some chemical scent, maybe their pee in the water, and then we expose the algae to that. So we can say specifically, do the algae respond to just the chemical scent? And what exactly did you discover? What we discovered was that any kind of indication that a predator was present or had been present previously induced the alga to swim away. And we structured our water column like we find structure in the ocean in that there are different salinities at different depths. And in this case, the alga is very tolerant of low salinities, whereas the predator is not. In our experiment, if the alga could reach an area of low salinity, we call that the low salinity refuge, then indeed the alga could survive. If we force the predator and the prey together in one tank and we don't allow the alga to swim away anywhere, then the predator will eat all of the prey within about one day. If we just have the alga by itself, it can double approximately every day. But if we have an alga that can effectively flee, it can double every other day in the presence of the predator. And that's really a key finding of this study, is that this fleeing behavior is very effective in increasing the survival of the alga. Is this behavior unique within the plant kingdom? As far as we know, we've done a thorough literature research on this, and there are many examples, of course, of plants making chemical constituents that make them less palatable or toxic to predators. There are also well-known examples of plants having morphological modifications, such as spines and thorns, that protect them from predation. But we haven't been able to find a prior example of any photosynthetic organism that has this kind of fleeing behavior. And what's the name of this alga? I'm out of here, alga? Is that the name of it? Yeah, we should rename it. It's called Heterosigma akashiwo. And akashiwo, I believe, means red tide in Japanese. Uh Uh-huh. 
What do you think is the significance of these findings in the bigger picture of what happens in the ocean? As an oceanographer, when I go out to sea, I often look out at the ocean and think, how are we ever going to figure this out? Because you have thousands of species that are interacting in a really dynamic environment. And here we can have these observations of microscopic cell-cell interactions that can really help us understand a large-scale process, such as how these phytoplankton live and survive. And I think that is really a highlight for me because it gives us hope we can unravel the complexity of marine food webs. What's next now? The next thing we would really like to do is look at other phytoplankton species. We don't know if this is a common or an uncommon behavior. The species we were studying is at times extremely successful in the ocean in making very dense surface slicks that are visible from low-flying aircraft. Part of what motivated our study was to say, why is this species so successful? So we would like to look at other species to see, are they equally able to flee from predators? Or is the success of the species that we studied partly due to the fact that it can flee from its predators? Susanna Mendendoyer is a professor of oceanography at the University of Rhode Island. Thanks so much for taking this time with us today. It was my pleasure. I was really glad to be here. They are popularly known as Genius Grants. And every year, the MacArthur Foundation gives out some two dozen of them. Each fellowship comes with a no-strings-attached prize of $500,000. And it goes to exceptionally creative and talented people in a wide variety of disciplines. This year's winners include a writer, a historian, a mandolin player, and marine ecologist Nancy Rabelais. She's executive director and professor at Louisiana University's Marine Consortium. Here's Living on Earth's Bobby Bascom. Nancy Rabelais got a surprise phone call one day telling her she'd won a MacArthur Fellowship and half a million dollars. Surprised is really not the correct word. I was flabbergasted. It's just so rewarding to be, you know, that well-respected by my colleagues. Rabelais has spent the last 28 years researching dead zones in the Gulf of Mexico. They're areas of extremely low oxygen, inhospitable to most marine life. If a shrimp trawler puts the net over the side and drags it on the bottom, he just won't catch anything. No shrimp, no fish, no swimming organisms. They flee out of the area. And crabs, worms, starfish, snails, clams, they will all eventually die off if the oxygen stays low enough for long enough. The dead zone in the Gulf varies in size from year to year. In 2010, it was the size of New Jersey. It's caused by nitrogen and phosphorus-rich water flowing into the Gulf of Mexico. No matter how you slice or dice it, the overwhelming majority of the nitrogen and phosphorus comes from agricultural activities. The Mississippi watershed drains about 41% of the contiguous United States, and most of it is in agriculture. That includes states like Iowa, Nebraska, and Kansas, where farmers use massive amounts of fertilizer. Runoff from farms and pastures make their way down the mighty Mississippi and into the Gulf. And the nitrogen and phosphorus stimulate the growth of phytoplankton, which eventually sink to the bottom, and the decomposition of that deletes the oxygen. Rabelais says that when she first started this work, it was hard to convince the public about the source of the problem. 
And it took a while for people to understand that something that could happen so far away from the Gulf of Mexico could be having a difference on the ecosystem. And now many people know about it. Many people are engaged in trying to make a difference and changing what they do on their land. So I think we've made great progress. Most of that progress, Rabelais says, comes from farmers experimenting with less harmful agricultural practices. So that includes different cropping techniques, less precision fertilizer use, buffer strips, um, sustainable agriculture, deep-rooted crops. I mean, there's so many things that can be done, and it's going to take a combination of all these activities to make a difference. For Rabelais, the $500,000 prize will make a difference, too. I'm going to try to support things that I can't do normally, trips to uh, spread more of the message, to work with people at the policy level, to support students who need travel to meetings, to buy equipment that I can't afford otherwise. So it's going back into the research. Into research and inspiring a new generation of scientists to carry on her work. I'm, I'm not giving up right away. I've got a lot left in me, I guess. <laughs> Nancy Rabelais, Marine Ecologist and MacArthur Fellow. For Living on Earth, I'm Bobby Bascom. From the symmetry of ferns to spiraling nautilus shells, there are patterns in nature wherever we look. But scientists at the Argonne National Laboratory have turned to music to reveal patterns in the ocean otherwise invisible to the human eye. Joining us now from the Argonne National Lab just outside Chicago is the biologist responsible for what he calls microbial bebop, Peter Larson. Welcome to Living on Earth. I'm glad to be here, Steve. Thank you for inviting me. So where did you get this idea to represent microbial data musically? First of all, my principal job is to represent complex data sets in a way that reveals patterns that are intuitive to a, to a human viewer. There have been other recent attempts to make audio versions of complex data. These have been from DNA sequences, protein sequences, as well as things like earthquake data. So it was an interesting opportunity to approach a very complex data set from a novel direction. What's the study that produced this data? The particular study is a long-term environmental project at the Western English Channel. Particularly, this data comes from a single location, the L4 station. And can you describe exactly what uh, the data is all about? The L4 station is an uh, automated buoy. It automatically collects data about the physical parameters of the ocean, temperature, salinity, chlorophyll. For the last decade or so, scientists in that area have been regularly going out and sampling the microbial diversity of that location. So we have a long-standing time course of microbial population diversity at a single location in the ocean. So we've got time, we've got microbial presence, we've got temperature, we have salinity, all of those things roll together. That's right. How did you turn this data into music? One thing that I wanted to get most out of this kind of approach was to highlight relationships between two different kinds of data. So in most of the pieces that we have posted, the melody is derived from a numerical measurement, such that a low, uh, the lowest measure is lowest note, the highest measure is the highest note. The other component is the chords, and the chords map to a different component of the data. A particular combination of data will sound different to a human listener 
if it's played in the key of temperature than it would if it was played in the key of phosphorus. <laughs> the key of temperature versus the key of phosphorus. Exactly. <laughs> okay, got your ears ready? Absolutely. All right, let's go ahead and play a few of these songs for you. First, we have uh, this microbial composition called Bloom. So what we're hearing here is the measurements of microbial abundances of microbes that are typically very low abundance in the population, but occasionally bloom to become major players in the population. So we're listening to 10 years of microbial data. Each measure in this data is a single observation. 12 observations per year, seven years the entire set. On occasion, you'll notice that the normally low melody notes will give a little spike, a uh, high note. And that maps to a bloom of microbial abundance of a particular bacterial species. Okay, so let's listen uh, to the next one. Uh, you called this Far and Wide. Okay, so in this case, uh, we are hearing the abundance of a single uh, microbial species. This one is called Rickettsialis. Rickettsialis is the most commonly observed bacterial species in this location in the ocean. Again, every measure is a particular observation. The cores in this case are derived from uh, day length and water temperature. Uh, we added some additional information to this one. Every time you hear that cymbal crash, that is an observation at which Rickettsialis is the most abundant microbe at that particular observation. That's a pretty busy uh, microbe you uh, map there with the, with the sound, huh? There's a tremendous amount of data that's produced by these kinds of experiments. Uh, terabytes and terabytes of data are derived from these analyses. Although the, uh, the music perhaps is a less rigorous approach, uh, certainly one of the things we want to do with this data is find ways to approach very complex data and identify those underlying patterns. Okay, and we've got one more uh, song here from your microbes. This one you called Blues for L. Blues for L. Again, this is uh, for the L4 station. So this is the L4 blues, rearranged to a slightly more provocative title of Blues for L. This is strictly looking at the seasonal patterns in the uh, physical conditions of the L4 station, where the chords in this case are photosynthetically active radiation, and the melody is comprised of eight notes per measure. Each note is a uh, particular measure of the chemical nature of the water, nitrate, salinity, uh, concentration of uh, silica, concentration of chlorophyll, the concentration of phosphorus, the concentration of nitrates. These are parameters that have a very distinct seasonal pattern. Blues, does that affect the color of the sea? <laughs> Uh, one of the uh, allowances I gave myself is the occasional very bad pun, yes. <laughs> so how can these songs help us understand the data? Songs themselves probably are never going to actively replace, you know, the bar graph for data analysis. But I think this kind of translation of complex data into a very accessible format 
is an opportunity to lead people who probably aren't highly aware of the importance of microbial ecology in the ocean and give them a, a very appealing entry into this kind of data. Why are patterns in the ocean's microbial life important in the bigger picture? In the bigger picture, microbes are, in, in some senses, the dominant form of life on Earth. Microbes, collectively, are the largest biomass. Microbes drive every biogeochemical cycle on Earth. In the ocean, 98% of the ocean's primary productivity, uh, the ocean's ability to turn sunlight and carbon dioxide into food for the rest of the ocean, is driven by these microbial species. It, we are to understand the consequences of a changing environment. We need to understand how this very, very critical portion of the biogeochemical cycles are going to be affected by things like rising temperatures in the ocean, rising salinity, changes in pH. Peter Larson is a biologist at the U.S. Department of Energy's Argonne National Laboratory. Thanks for being with us today. Thank you very much for inviting me. Next Living on Earth, the UN's forest preservation and emissions reducing policy called RED is paying off. Even though RED doesn't actually have a fully formed international mechanism, we've had about one and a half billion tons of emissions reductions just from the states of the Brazilian Amazon. Controversial RED path to a green planet next time on Living on Earth. We leave you this week with the distinctive sound of the season, the fall field cricket, Grillus pennsylvanicus. Fall field crickets hatch in the spring and continue to sing till the frost kills them. As it gets colder, they often seek a warm hiding place inside houses. Lang Elliott and Will Hirschberger recorded this field cricket for their CD, The Songs of Insects. Living on Earth is produced by the World Media Foundation. Bobby Bascom, Helen Palmer, James Kerwood, Megan Miner, Gabriella Romano, and Sammy Souza all help to make our show, and so does our intern, Emmett Fitzgerald. Jeff Turton is our technical director. Allison Lierish-Dean composed our themes. You can find us anytime at LOE.org, and check out our Facebook page, It's PRI's Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. Thanks for listening. Funding for Living on Earth comes from the National Science Foundation, supporting coverage of emerging science. And Stonyfield Farm, organic yogurt and smoothies. Stonyfield invites you to Just Eat Organic for a day. Details at justeatorganic.com. Support also comes from you, our listeners, the Go Forward Fund, and Pax World Mutual and Exchange Traded Funds, integrating environmental, social, and governance factors into investment analysis and decision-making. On the web at PaxWorld.com. PaxWorld, for tomorrow. PRI, Public Radio International.